Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Dr. Elaine Ingham of Soil Food Web, Inc. to talk about her experience with life in the soil. Dr. Elaine is the founder, president, and director of research of Soil Food Web, Inc., a business that grew out of her Oregon State University research program. Behind her user-friendly approach to soil lies a wealth of knowledge gained from years of research into the organisms which make up the soil food web. Her goal is to translate this knowledge into actions that ensure a healthy food web that promotes plant growth and reduces reliance on inorganic chemicals. Elaine also offers a pioneering vision for sustainable farming, improving our current soils to a healthier state without damaging any other ecosystem. 
In her spare time, Elaine publishes scientific papers, writes book chapters, and gives talks at symposia around the world. She and her husband, Russ, who also has a doctorate from Colorado State University in zoology, emphasizing nematology, lives in Corvallis, Oregon. Welcome to the show today, Elaine. Hi, Greg. I'm glad to be here. I'm very glad you invited me. Well, thank you for being here. I'm very excited to chat today. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. Um, most of what I've done really starts with working with my father, who is a veterinarian professor at the University of Minnesota. Okay. And when he went out in the field, he would often take me. Ooh. And I would go out when we got there, say, like at a dairy where, you know, the farm, the dairyman's feed, uh, herd of cows were half of them were down, you know, showing really terrible symptoms, staggering, uh-huh. not being able to see, photophobic. Um, wow. My dad would send me out into the pastures to play with the other farm kids and uh, go out and look for specific plants. And he would show me the leaf types that he wanted me to find. So water hemlock, poison um, plants of Ah. various kinds. And so I'd go out, you know, play with the kids, come back in and report to my dad that there was nothing except these poisonous plants in these pastures. And so, well, why, why were the animals all down and dying? because there was nothing left in the field except the poisonous plants for them to eat. And oddly enough, um, they were doing the, the poisonous business. Wow. And getting farmers to under, understand that they had to maintain a certain amount of grass in the field. They uh. couldn't just keep overloading. So, uh, and my dad would, you know, we'd take water samples from various places and he'd sit me down at the microscope in his laboratory and he would say to me, count the number of E. coli. And when I was six years old, my dad put me down at a microscope, sat me down at a microscope and and taught me how to use that microscope. At six years old? Yeah. Whoa. My parents wanted me to go to medical school. So, of course, that's where I was bound and Uh uh, worked at the Heart Hospital at the University of Minnesota the summer of my senior year and discovered I just, I I didn't like those people at all. They... (laughs) The doctors that were going to be my professors in the fall were just not the kind of people I wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. And so I decided instead of going to medical school that I would go to graduate school in microbiology. So my professor at St. Olaf College was a big influence on my life that I just loved microbiology. So I um, headed off to Texas A&M to work on my master's degree in marine microbiology. And my husband and I, you know, we were in graduate school together. So we hooked up, we got married at the end of the next year, summer of the next year, sorry. Mm-hmm. Then from Texas A&M, when we both finished up our master's degrees at Texas A&M, moved on to Colorado State University. We were looking for a university that would accept both my husband and me at the same time and give both of us um, uh, um, um, graduate yeah, yeah. Um, graduate research assistantships. So right. we would you know, work in the laboratory, teach classes and things like that. And it was only Colorado State University that gave us both research assistantships. So 
went to Colorado State, got to switch from uh, marine systems into soil systems, which is a major jump. Um, marine systems, when you're dealing in aquatic systems, you don't have that annoying stuff called sand, silt, clay, and organic matter. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's very hard to see microorganisms through that sand, silt, clay, and organic matter getting in the way. So I had to develop the methodologies for looking at these organisms in soil. How do you quantify them? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see both the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa and the nematodes when you're looking at a single sample? So develop those methods. How do you assess active fungi and active bacteria as opposed to all the dormant stages that are also present in the oh, soil. Right. And so working out all of those things for my PhD work at Colorado State. Both my husband and I then uh, were invited to stay at Colorado State University to work on postdocs. Mm -hmm. uh, from there, my husband and I were work looking for uh, a university that offered us both uh, professor positions. Oh, yes. Uh, and so... The day I went off to the University of Georgia to interview for a postdoc position there, my husband went off to Oregon State University to interview for the assistant professor. Mm -hmm. And um, they, I, I got the job at the University of Georgia, and I said yes to it. <laughs> and uh, like the day later, my husband got uh, invited to take the job at Oregon State. <laughs> so we went to the opposite sides of the country for wow. a year. And uh, But it was very useful because it was the first time ever at the University of Georgia that we actually tried to manipulate and manage biology in the soil. So working with Dave Coleman, um, Dak Crossley, the group at the University of Georgia, um, Eugene Odom, um, we actually tried to change the biology in the soil and documented what the benefit was to plant production. So we started getting rid of weeds. We got rid of the diseases that were a problem. We got rid of the root-feeding nematodes. Uh, we improved yields. So first time ever that data was published. Um, wow, what year I, was that? Oh gosh, that was 1985. Oh, wow, okay. It's been a while. Yeah. That um, documentation of the benefits of improving soil biology were actually published in the scientific literature. My mm -hmm. husband's PhD work, which of course I'm third author on his PhD work because I did the bacteria, fungi, and helped with the protozoa mm. assessments in the work that he was doing. And he of course worked on the plants and the nematodes. We had other people working on the microarthropods. And oh, we have I have a bunch of good stories about that uh, fun situ situation. But to continue on with the story of how I got where I am mm -hmm. at the Oregon State University, you know, started, I came, I came to Oregon State University at, at the end of the year of postdocing at the University of Georgia and got an assistant professorship. Oh, nice. Um, at Oregon State. Uh -huh. And I was just split between two different colleges I got half time in the forest science department and half time in botany and plant pathology, which is a really dangerous position for people to take because each college figures that you actually work full time for them. Oh, yes. <laughs> of course. And, you know, and it's like the other department is like, you, you, you don't really want to do anything with those people. You, you work for us. And so right. you're being paid half time. 
but they're expecting full time. And so there's always that issue of why aren't you doing everything that every other assistant mm. professor is doing, but I'm right. only here half time. Well, but still, you're supposed to be doing all of these things. So it was a, a bit of a challenge. So working on assessing biology and all of the ecological systems in Oregon, uh-huh. in Oregon out of the, I think it's like 14 different eco climates, uh-huh. um, there are 13 of them in Oregon. The only thing lacking in Oregon is tropical. Oh, right. So. I was forced to go to Hawaii and start working with people in Hawaii. Oh, that's um, tough. Yeah, I just, <laughs> arm forced me to go. It was just so terrible. Uh, <laughs> but you know, high cold desert systems, rainforests on the coast, uh-huh. the savanna system in the Willamette Valley, the all the mountainous regions going up to extremely high alpine systems, as well as the rain. Um, side of the mountains, right. the dry side of the mountains. So all of the di- different ecosystems and assessing the biology in all of those places and really continuing the documentation of what we started at Colorado State University, mm-hmm. showing that as you start out in very early successional ecosystems like bare soil where no plants are growing at all, uh-huh. uh, you've got sandsilk clay, but why aren't any plants growing there? And so documenting that the biology is lacking in that soil. You can't grow plants without having the right biology in the soil. And then as that biology starts to come along, first thing that comes in are the weeds. Oh, right, of course. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. rapidly growing, don't invest much in the soil, but there really isn't much soil there. So it's a process of being built. And nature is building that. So, you know, when people say weeds are terrible things, no, you your soil has to go through that weed stage yeah. to get to something more productive. And, of course, once you start to build the biology, that whole food web of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes, microarthropods, then you can start growing some of our early successional um, vegetables and build the soil a little bit more, keep building that mm-hmm. biology. Now you grow uh, tomatoes and you can grow parsley and corn and wheat and barley and equal ratio of fungi to bacteria. We have very highly productive plants. And just this last year, we were shown that where we put the biology back into the soil on the, on the farm down in California that we're working with. Uh-huh you bring that biology back into the soil, we increase yields by 300 to 900%. Wow. Yeah. And it's just by getting the biology. No other differences between the seeds that were planted in the no biology versus plus biology. No differences at all, but look at the effect. So finally being able to document some of that. So working on all of those kinds of things at uh, Oregon State University from I was working with people at the EPA laboratory in Corrales, Oregon, and they invited me on an intergovernmental personnel agreement to come and work at the EPA for a couple years with them, which is quite an interesting experience. Wow, no kidding. I would I would never repeat that. <laughs> uh, I didn't I didn't get much done while I was mm. there. There was just so much, and I, the the system is kind of strange. It's you know someone the head of the 
laboratory comes in on Monday morning and, oh, this big scandal has happened over the weekend. You know, this uh, chemical was released. Uh, it's destroying the water or, it, you know, it's poisoning something or there's been uh, another Superfund site has been found. Mm. We've got to work on this. And so drop everything you're doing and work on this. And so you have meetings and you put together who's going to work on which committee and you know, all this kind of uh, infrastructure. And by Friday, you're finally getting the experimental design put together and here's what we should do and here's who's going to do it now we got to mobilize out in the field and you come back in the next monday and it's oh there's been a big catastrophe here we've got to drop everything you're doing and turn your sights on this and it's amazing that you don't get anything done yeah actually i call it death by meetings yeah, yeah it's and i it drove me crazy but i i did have one project that was funded. I had a graduate student that was very interested mm-hmm. in working on genetically engineered organisms. Ah. And so Mike Holmes decided that the, the big problem that we were having in trying to determine whether genetically engineered organisms have an ecological effect. Oh, wow. Changes the ecosystem, the ecology um, enough to be detrimental or highly positive. You know, we didn't really care which way it went. We just right. wanted to document what the effects were. Well, the experiments that we were doing with the other researchers at the EPA were not properly controlled. There was no control. Oh. They would take a genetically engineered organism, put it into the soil mm-hmm. and document that a genetically engineered organism would die. Well, that's not surprising when you take a human pathogen and put it into soil. Uh-huh. The other organisms in that soil will outcompete, inhibit, and consume oh. that genetically engineered human pathogen. Mm-hmm. So they kept doing those kinds of experiments. I kept saying, you're not properly controlling for this because you don't have a treatment where you just take the parent E. coli and put the parent E. coli into that soil. Mm. And document that E. coli doesn't survive for more than 24 hours in a properly healthy soil. You're not documenting that genetically engineered organisms don't have an effect when you're putting the genetically engineered organism into the soil and showing that it's gone in 24 hours. That's no different from you know, the parent. It's not an organism that survives in soil. So how uh-huh. can you document? And an ecological effect and I suspect what, that's what they were looking for right that's what the government at the that period of time wanted to see wanted yeah. to hear and so the um, animal plant and health inspection service APHIS mm-hmm. uh, took that kind of not properly done science and wrote regulatory language that says genetically engineered organisms are of no greater risk than the parent. Ah, That's how they got to it. Interesting. Right. And so it outraged myself as well as my graduate students. So Mike decided that what he wanted to do was find a genetically engineered bacterium that actually came from the soil originally and would survive in the soil in competition with all the other microorganisms and then find the genetically engineered 
version of that microorganism and do experiments in the laboratory. So he found Klebsiella planticola, which had originated in Oregon. It had gone over to Germany. Mm-hmm. It had been genetically engineered over there to produce alcohol. So the idea was then that when um, they took this genetically engineered Klebsiella planticula, which decomposes all plant material, as far as we've ever been able to discover this gen- this gen- this uh, parent, uh-huh. the original Klebsiella planticula, has the ability to decompose any kind of plant material you want to talk to. It is found in the root systems wow. of all plants every place on this planet. The plant is actively feeding that Klebsiella planticula with exudates, so with cakes and cookies coming out of that root system. Uh-huh in order to have a massive concentration of these particular, that particular species of bacteria around its root system because it is very beneficial to the growth of the plant. Oh, right. So my graduate student had um, little units called microcosms, you know, small-sized ecosystems, mm-hmm. where we took soil with all of the biology in it, the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, uh-huh put the same amount of exactly the same kind of soil. So a massive batch of soil mixed it up. So all of the same biology going into every single unit. In the control, he took certain amount of Klebsiella planticula, the parent Klebsiella planticula, and added it with a specific amount of water. So there's the parent goes into all of these soils, Uh plant a seedling where we know that there is no other biology on the seed of that, the seedling on the root system of that plant. Plant that into that soil. So there's the control. Another kind of control was to take all the same soil, just put water into that treatment and then plant our little wheat seedling. And then of course the experimental treatment was to take that soil add in exactly the same amount of water, exactly the same number of Klebsiella planticula that were engineered to produce alcohol. Put the wheat seedlings in there. So I back up a second and say, why would somebody want to have a bacterium that produces alcohol? Well, because field burning was a huge problem at that time. In Oregon, in August and September, you couldn't go outside and breathe the air. Because because they were burning the crops. Yep, so much smoke that people with asthma really had to leave the state or leave the Willamette Valley Mm -hmm. during that time period where all of the, practically all of the fields were being burned. So how do you stop field burning? The idea was that instead of burning the residues that were causing the problems in the field, because if you don't have the right biology in your soil, if you have no biology in your soil, which is what we're doing in modern agriculture. If there's no biology left in the field, the residues do not decompose, which means there is a habitat oh. for diseases, all of the pests multiply in that yep. undecomposed organic material. So next year you have an even worse disease and pest problem. Plus a, plus a, a whole lot of soil with non-broken down organic material in it. Yeah, there I can show you agricultural fields in Iowa where the last time they had a corn crop in that field was 12 years ago, 
and we still find complete, whole, intact cobs of corn. No decomposition going on. The only way they can get rid of those residues that support the growth of the diseases and pests uh-huh. is to burn that. So, so how do you how do you change what we're doing? You get proper biology in there, and then right. you don't have to burn, and you don't have to use the genetically engineered organism. But anyway, back at the time, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, this was when that research was going on. It had been proposed to put this Klebsiella planticula out there and decompose all of that plant, well, not out in the field. You would collect all your residues bring them into the farm, put those residues in a big bucket, big tank uh-huh. on your farm, inoculate with the genetically engineered Klebsiella planticula, seal the tank mm. closed because, of course, alcohol production is um, an anaerobic process. Yep. Yeah. So the, Klebs- the, pan- the genetically engineered Klebsiella planticula with the ability to produce alcohol will do its thing. In about two weeks, you could open this picket at the bottom of the bucket, and out would come a solution of um, 34 proof alcohol. Oh, wow. To do what so, with? Well, you know, think about what you do with something that's 34 proof. Well, well that's vodka, isn't it? Yep. We drink it. And so there's one market. I'm not sure what, you know, uh, waste organic material uh, wine would taste like or vodka Vodka. uh, would taste like. But, you know, it's alcohol. It's 34 proof. You could distill that alcohol off and you could use it as gasohol. Yeah. You could use it to put into, well, you clean windows. You can use it to cook. So there's a million different uses for alcohol. And so, you know, they were touting this as a solution to field burning. Well, what they wanted (laughs) us, what we proposed to do for the EPA Uh was to look at whether there were any genetically engineered, whether that genetically engineered organism would cause an ecological effect. Uh So that's why the experiment was put, put together, because in the work that they were doing with the genetically engineered Klebsiella planticula, decomposing all that plant litter material, take the alcohol off as a solution. But what do you do with the sludge on the bottom of that bucket? 50% of the organic matter would not be decomposed because it doesn't decompose in anaerobic conditions all the way back to CO2. Right. So what do you do with the sludge on the bottom of the bucket? You're going to take that material because it now contains all of the nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, and calcium, or uh, every single nutrient you want to talk about in the soil. It's in there in high concentration. Are they going to make fertilizer out of it? And go spread that out on the field. So doesn't that sound like a a win-win-win solution? The farmer's making money from the alcohol, getting rid of a problem. Fuel burning doesn't have to bear that cost anymore. Gets rid of these problems. And... He now has an organic fertilizer, except what's still in that haha, organic fertilizer. Mm-hmm. It's the Klebsiella planticula engineered to produce alcohol. Yep. What's the effect of alcohol on growing plants? I would assume. And so it... when, when we asked that question uh-huh. to his committee, um, they all said, well, it shouldn't cause a problem. <laughs> we had a couple of plant uh, physiologists on his um, his committee, mm-hmm. and Mike and I, knowing the answer to that question was, 
anytime you have alcohol concentrations higher than one part per million in the soil, anywhere near a root, it will kill the plant because that alcohol right. solubilizes all the membranes yeah. in that root system. And the root can no longer function. It cannot transport nutrients from the soil up into the above ground part of the plant. Yeah. So the plant dies. And we, I remember Mike and I looking at each other going, okay, they, they haven't read the scientific literature, but we want to document it. Mm -hmm. We want to show that this is a problem. And so he put together, he designed that experiment. Seven days after he started the experiment, he came into the laboratory and all of the plants in the genetically engineered bacterium treatment were dead. They were slime, green oh. slime on the surface of the soil. All the plants where we had just put water mm -hmm. were growing beautifully. They, you know, seven days worth of growth, growth trying to escape out of the top of the microcosm where we had added the parent Klebsiella planticola, the plants were at least two to three inches bigger in a seven day period than with just water alone. So the first round made them grow and the fertilizer killed them. The uh, genetically engineered bacterium uh -huh. that we had added in the sludge, so we had, we had yeah. put that, that material was what we added. Same number of Klebsiella, engineered Klebsiella planticola went into that treatment as where the parent was put in. And then we had the water treatment with no added bacteria. So the water alone, the plants grew well with the added parent Klebsiella planticula that do not make alcohol. Mm -hmm. Plants grew uh, better. Where we put it. the engineered bacterium that were making alcohol right mm -hmm. around the root system on the exudates that the plant was producing, yeah. the plants all died. They all turned into green slime. So when you look at the logical consequences of releasing those bacteria, the engineered Klebsiella planticula out into the real world, the logical consequences that we would lose terrestrial plants, we would kill them all. And because did they do once that? Once you release a bacterium out into yeah. the real world, that survives and grows in the habitat that we would put it into, mm -hmm. we can't get it back. Yeah. And so from that initial inoculum point, wherever that might have been, and we, they were planning on doing field studies with the Klebsiella planticula engineered to produce alcohol, from that point of release, that bacterium would spread. Would be Typically out the at a rate of about 10 to 11 miles per year in every direction. Oh, wow. And terrestrial plants would die. Wow. Riparian and aquatic plants wouldn't because both riparian and aquatic plants, the reason they are riparian and aquatic uh -huh. is they have a mechanism for dealing with alcohol production. Got it. Terrestrial plants do not. Do you think that might have a little of an ecological <sighs> effect? Yeah. 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 So you obviously were able to get through to somebody about that and they didn't put that out there. Right. Yeah. And we were, when my graduate, when Mike saw these results, he quickly wrote up a, a report. We presented it to the director of the EPA. And at first they were, oh no, you must've done something wrong. There <laughs> must be 
an error in your methodology. This, you know, genetically engineered organisms are of no greater risk than parent. Don't you know that? Yeah. And we were, no, guys, look, we, we can engineer organisms that would be utterly devastating. And that's what you're looking at here is one of those organisms. Wow. And you're about to release it in the next couple of weeks to the real world out in a field study. And it might be a good idea if you didn't <laughs> Not to do, do that. that. And they were, oh, well, you know, you must have done something wrong. But, you know, the director was bright enough to finally say, well, if there's any question, we can't do this field release. And so the field release was halted. Yeah. And with the repeat of the experiment by my graduate student, by Mike Holmes, became very clear that this was an organism that that had that potential um it produces alcohol in the root systems of every plant that it's ever yeah. been produced in yeah parent yeah. not a problem yeah. engineering did produce alcohol people often ask me well didn't mother nature make that bacterium do you, don't you suppose that's already in existence somewhere on the planet it might have been something that occurred through evolution uh -huh. but because it kills its host so rapidly it won't survive because it's got to have plants right. to grow on so if it occurred naturally in nature maybe it destroyed most of the plants on a continent but then finally it died out and mother nature didn't repeat that experiment yeah <laughs> it's a dead end <laughs> well actually mother nature did repeat that experiment in the in the form of a human a human experiment. Yeah, yeah. If we look at what human beings and how toxic we are to the yeah. vegetation on this planet, yeah, we're. Yeah. Wow. She tries to do different things. If they don't work, they kill themselves. Yeah. And she happily goes on about her way doing something different. Yeah. That um, is that is an amazing story and and one of caution. That's a cautionary tale of experimenting and then putting that stuff out in the world. Right now, we don't know exactly yeah. where in the genome of the bacterium that that genetic material has been inserted, but mm -hmm. we've inserted the genetic material to be able to make alcohol. And what other effects, what other things are, is that DNA capable of doing? Right. So as we've started to realize that DNA is not read just as a single protein from a single strand. Mm -hmm. There, There's going to be a hundred different protein start signals along that length of DNA. Oh, right. And you're altering a hundred, if not a thousand, or how many proteins are you altering in that organism? And what's the effect of all of those protein alterations, all those changes in enzymes? It's more likely to be causing ecological, ecological damage than right. not yeah. causing ecological damage. So, so we had these results. The information got published in the research notes from Oregon State University. Uh -huh. A non-governmental organization picked it up and asked uh, Mike and I to come and present that information to the United Nations. Oh, nice. And so we came and, and gave a, a presentation. Mike realized pretty rapidly that he was really uncomfortable in those situations, really didn't like that whole scenario. So when the biosafety protocol meeting of the United Nations was convened in Madrid, 
that non-governmental organization wanted Mike and I to go there. Mike said he didn't want to go. He had to finish up his PhD. Well, and I agreed that was much more important for him to finish. Yeah. And so I went to Madrid and presented this information to the uh, whole biosafety protocol um, uh, group that was meeting. And it was it's like 124 different countries and their representatives to the United Nations were there. And so at the end of the first day, after listening to a whole day of the U.S. has told us that genetically engineered organisms are of no greater risk than their parent, we're here and we're going to just um, vote uh, at the end of the week uh, to say um, biosafety protocol is not necessary. And oh, wow. I'm in the back just going, oh, man, this is going to be kind of nasty when I present my data from Mike's work because – this absolutely is going to give total credence to those people who want a biosafety protocol. It, how can you not right. have a biosafety protocol yeah. given the results that we're showing? So I uh, got to the end of the day. I was the second to the last speaker or the second to the last speaker on that day. And I gave my little three-minute synopsis of what we've done. And at the end of my talk, you could have heard a pin drop. Wow. Absolute science, silence in the room. And it lasted a good 30, 35 seconds. And someone finally puts their hand up, and it's the U.S. representative. Oh. And the U.S. representative says, oh, she's just talking about pink elephants. All the maybe it could happen. It might be a problem. She has no actual field data to show that that's what's going to occur. Wow. And I got um, the opportunity to rebut that statement. And I said, right, because if you release this organism out into the real world to do that real world field testing, what would happen? We would all lose terrestrial plants. Mm -hmm. Imagine for a second trying to live your life with no corn, wheat, barley, oats, no tomatoes, no potatoes, no celery, no lettuce, no plums, no raspberries, no blueberries, none of that. We can't be doing these tests in field situations because it is too dangerous, obviously. Uh -huh. Genetically engineered organisms can be of a great deal of danger. And we need to change the biosafety protocol to reflect how we deal with that situation. And how do they respond? And the response by the end of the week, uh, the biosafety protocol was approved. Wow. Thank you very much, by the way. <laughs> it was, whew, it was a, a big whew. But yeah. I returned to Oregon State University, walked into the um, department, I uh, was walking down the t uh, hall towards my office. I didn't even get to my office, and my department head comes out and says, you, in my office. Oh, my God. And I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> who's the major funder of that department outside the university? And, you know, see the, the academics, well, especially the bureaucrats, they know they're going to get the funding from the state so that they don't really have to <laughs> – behave themselves right? because that funding's coming. So after the state, who is the most important contributor of research funds? I would say Big Ag. You're exactly right, especially yeah. when you're in botany and plant pathology. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think at the time Monsanto was uh, contributing $75 million in grant funds to the department, I believe. I was only pulling in much, much less than that. So in, you know, conflict, who's going to win out yeah. from the university's point of view, where they've got to keep the bu- the business of the university running and functioning? Who are they going to, whose side are they going to fall on? Well, of course, it's going to be big ag. So I walked into my department head's office, sat down and looked at them, and they said, there has been real questions about the quality of your research. Oh, of course. We don't think that your methodology is correct. And it, how, do you, how do you defend yourself against that? You know, well, I have over 75 publications in the scientific literature using these methods, and no one has ever called them into question. Yeah. Nobody has ever said that there was a problem with them or that the conclusions that I'm getting from doing this uh, work with my methods is is questionable. It's never happened before. Uh-huh. And I was very much taken aback. I had a pretty good uh, inkling of where the pressure was coming from. And I could kind of see the handwriting on the wall at that point. So I went out and and started to put together a private business. And uh, we had a soil microbial biomass service that we were offering the general public Mm -hmm. that they send samples in. And we were doing quite a nice business of doing samples for the general public. Well, if the university was going to punt, punt kick me out the door, right. then I was going to take that business. We'd shut it down at Oregon State University, and I'd take that business and start it as a private enterprise. And that is called Soil Food Web Incorporated, which uh-huh. was started in 1996. Um, because, uh, yes, I did not remain a professor at Oregon State University. I basically lost my job. Wow. Over this conflict. For telling yeah. the truth, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I say I say that you um, averted a disaster, though. It sounds to me that that this one could have ended life on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I saved human beings from a very rapid demise. Mm-hmm. And people will often say, you saved life on Earth. No. I saved human beings and a yeah. lot of our associated organisms that live with us or we require uh-huh. didn't end life on earth because of course alcohol production bacteria fungi protozoa nematodes microarthropods they're not really going to be destroyed right um i think it They'll would very it, it would yeah it would i think the next intelligent creature that would evolve eventually on this planet would be cockroaches <laughs> there you go they can survive anything you there know you there you go. <laughs> so so along it, along the way in that uh in your sharing you said something you said several things and i kind of want to dig into them a little bit um one of them was talking about how do we get the biology back in the soil so we do have sand silt and clay there and nothing else like what's somebody's next step Basically, what they want to do is get hold of some good organic matter mm-hmm. and uh, grow their own organisms on that organic matter. It's um, called composting, but you have to learn to compost correctly. It's not a reduced waste process, mm-hmm. and so all of the landfill municipalities that run composting operations are not composting. 
if you go back to the definition of composting, oh, uh-huh. uh, it's composting has to be an aerobic process. Mm. And if you put a big pile of organic matter together, let um, those organisms start growing, it's going to go anaerobic. And now you're making, you're growing pathogens and pests because right. that's the habitat yeah. where they grow. You have to keep it aerobic. How do you keep a compost pile aerobic? Well, you turn it when it needs to be turned, which is when that internal part of the pile starts to go anaerobic, you need to turn it to get oxygen back, back into, into the it. pile. Uh-huh. Right. You have to make certain that you um, have the mechanisms for getting rid of the pathogens and the pests. So most people do thermal piles where you let the growth of the microorganisms produce the temperatures that will kill the pathogens and the pests and the parasites in that organic material that you started with. Mm-hmm. If you're doing worm composting, then you got to have the worms going through that material. And either the material has to be touched by the outside of the worms or it has to go through the worm's digestive tract because both of those things will take care of the pathogens, the pests, and the parasites. Oh, nice. You uh, can static compost if you pay attention to the process. You've got to make sure that you have the worms or the microorganisms that will inhibit, compete with, and consume the diseases and the pests. So a static pile is a little bit more iffy uh-huh. because people often don't have the right microorganisms in that material, especially when you think about where we're getting our organic matter from, which is from fields that have had massive amounts of pesticides, inorganic fertilizers, all kinds of toxic materials applied to them to make those plants grow. And of course, you've um, killed off most of the microorganisms on the plant surfaces and in that soil when you go out and you apply those toxic chemicals. Most people don't think of inorganic fertilizer as being a toxic chemical, but every single inorganic fertilizer is a toxic chemical, especially at the concentrations that we apply it. Yeah. You know, somebody tells you to put on three tons of lime. Well, oh my gosh, lime is a salt. Yep. It's going to suck all the moisture out of your soil and tie it up and the calcium carbonate. And so three tons of that, uh, you have really whammied most of the microorganisms in your soil. So even in organic systems, they allow the use of lime and gypsum, um, very toxic. They're killing off their microorganisms. So many organic growers have problems growing things because they keep knocking off the biology. They're going backwards in succession, and they've got weed fields. And what they grow best there's weeds. In all kinds of uh, agriculture today are weeds. Yeah. We're growing weeds. And so you've got to use all those herbicides. You've got to use the inorganic fertilizers. You've got to use all these toxic chemicals to gr- try and reestablish the conditions that the microorganisms will establish for you if you will just let, let them, them do their job. So steps to, steps to regaining healthy soil. Start with organic matter. Yep. And you want a massive diversity of different kinds of organic matter. You don't want to be putting in just corn cobs or just um, tomato leaves or grass clippings. The microorganisms in the soil 
we have to have a massive diversity in bacterial species in the soil. It's been estimated by the Center for Microbial Ecology at Michigan State University that in a typical agricultural field, we need to have at least a million species of bacteria. A million different? Different species. Wow. Way easy. There are billions, probably billions of species of bacteria on this planet. So not difficult. It's Uh. just that you can't get that million different species if your compost is made out of just grass clippings. Yeah. It's only one kind of food. Yeah. Think about human beings. If you only have one kind of food in a city, what's going to happen to the population in your city? I think Michael Pollan did that experiment where the only thing he was eating was McDonald's. Yeah, how long did he stay alive? Uh, or, you know, he almost died at not even less than 30 days. He was, yeah. So if there's only one kind of food to eat, you're not going to be able to uh, convert your soil into a healthy soil. Yeah. So lots of different kinds of organic matter. And, of course, typically that organic matter comes with all these different species of bacteria and fungi and protozoa and even the nematodes. Yeah. So, you know, fungi, there are probably equally as many species of fungi as there are of bacteria. Yeah. Um, protozoa, we're looking in the hundreds of thousands of species. Nematodes, we're looking in the, you know, 10,000 species wow. or more of nematodes. Yeah. My husband has a, a favorite line that he always gives when he's um, starting his nematology class. My husband is a nematologist. He works on those cute little roundworms. He always says that if everything else on this planet could somehow instantaneously disappear except for the nematodes, you would be able to tell where every single living thing on this planet, every single building, every single structure on the planet was because you could see the outline of those of everything by the nematodes still remaining oh my gosh there's so many nematodes on the surfaces Mm -hmm. of everything and people think about that for a few seconds and they go you're telling me that i got nematodes all over my body and you would be able to see where i am or was if you took everything away you would still be able to see where i was because all of the nematodes living on me? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's a good thing because if you didn't have all that biology protecting you and your surfaces, the diseases and the pests and the parasites would get to us. Have open heyday. They yeah. would just be able to attack and consume without any any control yeah. on their ability to take you out. So that proper biology is really important. The same thing in the, in the digestive system. The gut microflora is extremely important in human health. Well, where do those organisms in your um, digestive system, your microbiome mm-hmm. inside yourself, where do those organisms come from? From the surfaces of the foods you eat. And right. that means on the surface of your apples and the surfaces yeah. of your asparagus and broccoli and corn, everything you eat should be coming with these beneficial organisms on them. Where do those beneficial organisms on plant surfaces come from? Well, from the soil. Right. Because every single plant started out as a seed and those leaves were completely inoculated. Mm-hmm. And so all of that leaf material growing above ground has to have its protective layer. Yeah. So we wow. apply pesticides. What happens to the protective layer? Goes away. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. 
And now your plants are now subject to every disease, every pest, every parasite that comes along. No protection. So it sounds to me like the really the bottom line here is we need good, healthy soil biome to make really everything else healthy. Exactly. Yeah. Soil is the basis of everything else mm-hmm. that in, in our lives, basically. We've got to have that good biology in the soil. And we could reduce the pollution in our rivers and lakes and yeah. streams. We could you know, reduce the amount of weeds so growing much, on yeah. this planet. And it's so easy to go out there and put on the good biology and then walk away. You don't have to do anything else. You might have to give it a little time, one growing season, for the proper biology to establish. Mm-hmm. But after that, the weeds are not an, a significant part of the system. The weeds should be the sick, unhealthy, unhappy things, and the plant you want there should, should be, be thriving. Should, yeah. Should be thriving. So lots of good, healthy compost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's teaching people how to compost. And that's always been difficult to get people to understand that yeah. because they're influenced by the waste reduction um, you know, system where yeah. you, you don't want to keep filling up your landfills. How do you prevent your landfill from fi- filling up? Well, the largest component of material going into landfills was organic matter. Mm-hmm. And so they diverted that organic matter, put it into big piles and if you do leave it long enough, it might turn into decent compost, yeah. but most of them can't wait that long because there's not enough space around the city <laughs> to this do is, that. Yeah, this is where the curing part of compost comes in, isn't it? It's getting it right from the very beginning yeah. because if you do composting correctly, it only takes maybe 21 to 30 days mm-hmm. to have a finished pile. But when you're doing it wrong, you may not have finished compost for a year. So how do we know what good compost is? You need to have uh, that compost. Um, You have to decide which kind of system you're composting with. Thermal composting, which is what most of the landfill organic matter has gone into, Mm -hmm. is thermal composting. And in thermal composting, you've got to be checking temperature. You've got to be making certain that the inside of that compost pile is not going anaerobic. The easiest way to test that is to put a thermometer into it. Because as soon as the thermometer temperature starts going over about 160 to 165, organisms are growing so rapidly inside that pile that they're using up the oxygen faster than the oxygen can Mm -hmm. diffuse into the middle of that pile. So how are you going to put oxygen back in there? Turn it. Turn it. Yeah. It's just so simple. An answer, it, turn it. And then the temperature comes right back up as long as you're maintaining temperature above 131 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. You're killing for weeds. Full, you're killing weed seed. Yep. You're killing every kind of seed that's in there. You're kill, killing the human pathogens, the plant pathogens, the root-feeding nematodes, the pests, the parasites, the scared worms, the eggs, all of that is going to be killed by those temperatures. Yeah. Well, there, there there, you have it. Compost is the yep. solution. Nice. Yeah. Nice, and nice. And doing it right. Yeah. Um, instead of, you know, just throwing your organic matter over there in the corner and crossing your fingers and hope. Yeah. Most of the time that organic matter you just throw in the corner never gets hot enough to kill the pathogens. And you may be growing a whole entire pile of pathogens. you got to 
have at least a modicum of understanding of what you're doing when you're making compost. Yeah. So typically with a thermal compost, mm -hmm. you're going to make a pile that is a mix of 10% high nitrogen material, which is uh, legumes. So, you know, bean, peas, beans, vetch, alfalfa, clover. A good mix. A good mix, yeah. yeah. A good mix. Number diversity is the spice of life. You yep. got to have all of the different species. Um, you want about 30% green material. And green is any plant that was cut when it's green. Mm -hmm. Collect it. You can store it for a while. It, it dries down. It goes brown as long as, you know, you don't have any mold or anything growing on it stays just fine. You can hold on to it for years in a dried condition. Same thing with your legumes, years in a dried condition. And then 60% of the pile needs to be woody materials. So any plant material that was cut when it was brown, mm -hmm. all your dried leaves falling off dried your trees, yep. your pine needles, your stalks of various kinds of things, uh, wood chips, paper, cardboard are all good sources of woody materials. Paper shred is, your paper, pa shred your cardboard. Yeah, paper as long as it isn't uh, laser printer paper or copier paper because you don't want those chemicals from that ink in your pile. Isn't that correct? You can get away with a little of it. Yeah. Probably no more than 5% of the pile can be that kind of, you know, that quality paper. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you go out and you spend... Uh, go eat dinner and you get that, you know, the ticket at the end. Um, it's on that kind of paper typically. A few of those can be in your compost pile, yeah. just not too much. We do have microorganisms that quite happily decompose that material. Oh, very it's, good. Yeah, very good. it's just that they're not common. And so you have to oh, make yes, certain that. Of course, make sure there's not a whole lot of that in there. Makes perfect sense. So there's just a little bit for them to chew on as a co-metabolism is what, how most of the aerobic microorganisms deal with those toxics in that paper. So oh. not a problem in small numbers. Yeah. Typically, you're going to see the temperature on that compost rise to above 131 between in within uh, three days. Yep. And you just turn it, turn the pile whenever it gets uh, up to about 160, 165. You typically have to turn about five times. And then you just let the pile mature until it comes back to, you know, more or less within ambient temperature. Because, mm -hmm. of course, when you mix it all up and you now put it out on your plants, you're cooling that compost as you're putting it out onto your plants. And typically what we use that compost for is just as an inoculum. Oh, right. So you don't need more than a ton per acre. Mm-hmm. So think about, uh, you know, somebody's uh, 100 foot by 100 foot lot. You need maybe, you know, 50 pounds yeah. of good compost. Yeah. And and then you give the rest of it away to your friends at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> love, love, love that. So great information on composting. Thank you for that. Um, I, I want to shift on you because I have a couple questions for you, but I, I do want to make note. You uh, mentioned the Super Size Me documentary from 2004 where somebody, it was actually Morgan Spurlock, ate McDonald's oh, for 30 days. Uh, so I wanted to... Thank you. Yeah. I Thank you for correcting me on that. Clarify, clarify that. So what drives you? What drives me? Um, I guess there are 
I champion the cause of healthy soil. These microorganisms that are in our soils should be in our soils to help our plants be healthy. Um, take the nutrients that exist in our soils and turn them into the plant available sources. And, and most people don't understand that particular step. They think they have to put on inorganic fertilizer to replenish right. the nutrients that were removed when they harvested their plants. For as long as you've got rocks, sands, silts, clays, organic matter in your soil, there is no need to put on an inorganic fertilizer. Oh. You have all the nutrients that you need in that soil. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you kill the microorganisms in that soil off and turn that soil into dirt, there is no mechanism to get those nutrients that are present in the rocks, the sand, silts, clays, and pebbles, and organic matter, there's no way to convert those into a plant-available form. And so it's kind of a self-perpetuating myth, if you will. Uh -huh. You start putting on inorganic fertilizers, you're killing the organisms, so now your plant doesn't problem. have the nutrients, so now you've got to put on more inorganic fertilizers. Yeah. So you've killed more of that biology, so you got to put on more inorganic fertilizer. See where we're, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. We have yeah. to turn that around. The only exactly. way to turn it around is put the biology back. back and so getting people to understand that you know the, the current agricultural paradigm is 180 degrees the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And we've got to start putting the right biology back. Well, you know, they just go out and make mistakes. People who don't really know what they're doing make all kinds of mistakes. And they say, well, see, it didn't work. So, you know, all this biological stuff is nonsense. You have to actually establish that you've got good biology in the, first in the materials you're putting on. Yeah. And you are not in any way killing those organisms. Every time you till soil you kill these organisms. Yeah. So when the organic approach to dealing with weeds is to go out and till the weeds in. That's messing with the soil, is it not? That's right. Yeah. You're going backwards succession. You're now back again at the weed stage yep. of succession. Yeah. You are not going to be able to grow healthy plants until you get the biology back to the proper balance for your corn or your tomatoes or your lettuce or your blueberries or your trees or whatever you wanted to grow. Right. Wow. So I'm, I'm on a mission to make people <laughs> understand how important these organisms are in the soil and that if human beings want to stay on this planet, if mm -hmm. we want to continue existing, we have to make certain that our microbial friends are willing organic workers that all you have to pay them is exudates coming out of the root system of your plant, and they are more than happy to do all these incredible things. Thanks for us, our workers. Yep, our build workers. structure in the soil so oxygen can go as deep in the soil as it possibly can. Yeah. People have been told that root systems only go down maybe four to six inches, or like go to a golf course and talk to a sup uh, superintendent that is mired in the chemical approach and they'll tell you the root systems of the grass don't go more than an eighth of an inch into the soil wow. because and their reason is because they are mowing the top part of the plant to an eighth of an inch oh, and right. so the root systems go down don't go down more than an eighth of an inch mm -hmm. absolutely incorrect that is not the reason why those root systems won't go down into the soil the reason is that soil is so compacted yep 
anaerobic and you they are growing organisms in that dirt that make alcohol and we're back and our, in their root systems yeah here we and come we're back there. and we're back there yep so you've got to make certain that your soil stays aerobic well how do you build the structure the air passageways the hallways mm -hmm. allow oxygen and water and roots to go down as deep as they should be going it's the food web. We've got to get bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms, all these creatures that form that structure in the soil you have to build it. It doesn't just magically happen. You got to be doing the right things to build that structure. How deep should the root systems of grass in your lawn be going down into the soil? Good question. They should be going at least 15 to 20 feet. Whoa not a couple of inches yeah so can you see the difference in yeah. healthiness of your grass if if your root systems are only going down a quarter of an inch half an inch an inch or two there is no way that plant is getting the nutrition it, it, requires. it requires yeah so so create create healthy yeah. soil with healthy organisms that's it perfect they are more than happy to do that work for you because you feed them by the plants that you're putting into the system yeah well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Elaine. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, great. Thank you very much for having me on show. Absolutely. So I, I usually at this point ask for your contact information, but I want to ask one thing before. You have an online soil course called lifeinthesoilclasses.com. Can you just briefly tell us about them? I basically go over the theory, the knowledge that we've gained about the food web mm -hmm. and show you pictures of the critters, talk about what each and every different group of organisms do, why it's important for plants, lots of examples of um, getting the biology back and here's what's happening to you know, production. So mm -hmm. I mentioned the increases of 300 to 900% increase in yields from the plants where we have the proper biology. So that's the first set of, I think it's something like uh, 45 lectures. Wow. Then we have a class on compost. How do you make compost? And there's uh, about 15 lectures in that compost. And we go over thermal composting as well as worm composting and slightly touch on the subject of static composting. Mm -hmm. The next class, another um, 14 lectures, I believe, is uh, making the liquid form of compost. Once you've made really good compost uh, with all this great biology in it, you can extract tea. those organisms from that compost and the soluble organics and nutrients from that compost, and that's compost extract or compost tea. Mm -hmm. Compost extract is where we just extract the organisms and we uh, apply what that concentration that's in that um, compost or you can add foods to that compost extract and get the organisms to grow and multiply and reproduce. Of course, it's got to stay aerobic, so there's right. the tricky part of that. Mm -hmm. Making compost tea, it has to stay aerobic. So you can multiply your organisms, so you can take something that it would only cover you know, a 10-foot by 10-foot area to something that would uh, cover 10 acres. Right. By adding a little bit of sugar to it, no, no sugar. No sugar. What we've what we've seen is sugar basically grows bacteria. Oh, okay. And that is the one organism you probably have in dirt that it's still there. They're not good species. Got it. But you know, we're 
all we have to do is get a very bare inoculum of the good guy bacteria in there and they start winning. But what we're really truly lacking in soil is fungi, protozoa, and nematodes. Mm -hmm. And so for the fungi, Uh the most important thing is to get in some really complex liquid forms of food for the fungi. So humic acids, omic acids, fulvic acids, complex carbohydrates. So if you were going to go with the sugar, you know, get the royal jelly from honeybees. Honeybees, yeah. Um, very complex, and that's going to select more for the growth of fungi than it is going to select for bacteria, and that's what we really have to work on in most cases. Mm-hmm. We've been doing an excellent job of destroying everything except bacteria. Got it. So, and you have one other class called the microscope class. Is that not the case? Tell us about that one. Yeah, that's correct. So the last segment is the microscope class where we teach people how to use the microscope will give you a connection to a company that sells the microscope that we use and uh, pretty inexpensive is about $300. Mm -hmm. And then we go through each and every group of organisms, the good guys and the bad guys and the stuff that you will see in soil. So you can identify the organisms that you have. You don't always have to be sending samples into the laboratory and having us do those samples for you you can do them yourselves. And of wow. course, you don't have to get real nitpicky. Right. You don't have to know that I've got 1.35678910 uh, <laughs> micrograms of this, that, or the other thing. You just have to know yeah. if, wow, I don't have much. Not, there are not many not of those over here. Or, okay, there's some there. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah. Or, yeah, that's what I want to see. I want to see these guys running around. <laughs> so wow. easy so, when you're only having to do that kind of quantification. Yeah, so this is a, an extensive set of classes that you do. Yeah, we wow. really want to teach people how to do this themselves. Uh-huh. And, of course, then we have other classes at the farm down in California where we do practical, hands-on. Mm-hmm. You can come and be with us for five days or 10 days or 15 days and get some practical experience making your own compost piles, looking through the microscope, seeing all of the different ecosystems, the yeah. soils that we have on our own property. And, of course, we introduce you to all the experiments that we've got going on, and we keep adding more. Yeah. So this is our will be our second growing season, full growing season that will be on the farm. So just really getting some more research projects going. Yeah. Nice. Perfect. So that is lifeinthesoilclasses.com. Correct. Great. How can our listeners get a hold of you? They can get hold of me by my website, soilfoodweb.com. Okay. Or they can go to the farm and that's environmentcelebration.com. Nice. And so if they want to email, it's info at environmentcelebration.com. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash life in the soil. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, 
or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store. I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.